0: I'd like to ask you if you would to open your Bibles to James chapter two. There is a Bible app event for this. If you have the Bible app, you can go there and you can look for a live event near you, and you can follow along there. The scripture will be there. I'll also try to have it here on a PowerPoint for you. Um, we're beginning a series today on keystones to Christian faith. I hope you have a couple of different things with you. Uh, I hope. Uh, I hope you have a good cup of coffee with you. <laughs> And I hope you have communion with you. I hope you have some bread and the cup as well to take communion as we move toward the end of the service in a short time here. James chapter 2 is where we'll be in a minute, and there's a lot of other passages as well that we'll be looking at. The other day, someone asked the question, if you could have any superpower, what would you want? And of course, the answers came in. I would want the superpower of invisibility. I want to be able to fly. I want to be able to go real fast like Flash. I want to be able to be strong like Superman. I want my spidey senses working. And then one person had a a really good answer to the question. This person said, I want to be like Rogue, (laughs) because Rogue's superpower is to steal anybody else's superpower. Superpower. Hey, that's quite the superpower there. That's a good answer. Or at least I thought it was until someone said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You live in a world where no one has any superpower. If your superpower is to steal other people's superpower, then you have nothing to steal. You have no superpower. And I thought, wow, yeah. And it occurred to me that people think too deeply about these sorts of things. (laughs) You know what, though? There is a superpower. In fact, there's a number of them. And they're keystones to Christian faith. The superpower I want to talk to you about today is mercy. And we'll talk about some others in the weeks that are ahead, Lord willing. Mercy. Mercy and grace. They're actually kind of two sisters. <clears throat> grace is when you get something good that you didn't earn. So it's like at the end of the day when maybe you were supposed to mow the lawn and you were supposed to take out the garbage and you were supposed to do a couple other things. At the end of the day, your wife still gives you a pie that she makes. You didn't deserve that, <laughs> but she gave it to you. That's a silly example of Grace. An example of mercy is when you did something bad and you were going to be punished for it, but you didn't have to take the punishment. Like maybe as a kid you were grounded and that meant you have to stay home. But your buddies were going fishing and your parents said to you, hey, you know what? I'll have mercy on you. You can go fishing with your buddies this Friday night. That's mercy. Mercy and grace. They're beautiful things. Well, I want to talk to you about mercy today. That is deserving something bad and receiving something good instead or avoiding that bad thing. It's a superpower. You've probably seen the power of mercy. Pastor Chuck Smith, in his book, Why Grace Changes Everything, tells a great story of mercy. seems that he had a friend who had left his wife, has left his family, to move in with another woman. And just a few weeks after his friend had done that, a different pastor, a a local guy, went to visit this adulterous couple. And when he got there, he said this to them. He said, "Uh, I had a vision. He said this to the man. He said, I had a vision of a black hearse with your body in it. And if you do not leave this adulterous relationship, they will carry you out of this apartment feet first. Oh, wow. How do you think that went over? How do you think that worked? It didn't. It really didn't work at all. In fact, Pastor Chuck says it caused that, that couple to kind of dig in their heels and to become even more determined to make this adulterous relationship work. Sometime later, Pastor Chuck got a phone call, and the phone call was from this gentleman's wife. She said, would you please go visit my husband? Pastor Chuck said, yes, I will. And so when he went to visit, he entered this small apartment they were living in above a garage. It was a dingy apartment, dirty, shabby. It was on a bad side of town, and it was not at all a desirable residence. And as he entered, his thoughts, Pastor Chuck's thoughts, Went to what his friend had left behind. He thought of the beautiful home that his friend lived in just weeks before, and he thought of the the beautiful daughters that his friends had, friend had. And and he thought as well of of the lovely wife that he had. And, and And Pastor Chuck says this. He said, "I felt like my friend had traded his soul for a crust of stale bread." Yeah. So there he was. He went in to see his friend. He arrives. He sees that, what do you say when you find yourself in that pastor's situation? Well, he started to speak, but he couldn't. He he felt the tears around the edge of his eyes. And, and then he, as he began to speak, he felt himself begin to cry. And soon he felt himself weeping. And before he knew it, he was sobbing uncontrollably because of what he saw, because of what his friend had left behind. Finally, he composed himself enough to say, I'm sorry, I, I just, I came over to talk to you, but I just can't talk right now. And feeling like a complete failure, feeling like a fool, Pastor Chuck said of himself, he got up from his seat, walked to the door, walked down the steps alongside that garage, and went back to his car. The next morning, he got a phone call, and you know who it was from the friend had returned home to his wife and daughters just hours after Pastor Chuck's visit. It's interesting to me that it wasn't the threat of judgment that changed his friend's heart. It was the power of mercy. And that's a biblical reality. I like how the English Standard Version translates James chapter 2, where it says in verse 12, So speak and so act, As those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I love that last sentence. Mercy is a superpower. And it's a keystone of Christian faith. And as we celebrate communion in a short time, we're actually celebrating God's mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment because mercy actually reaches the heart. It reaches your heart. All of us have been around those who would condemn others. For some people, sadly, that seems to be their pastime. That's not what Jesus is all about. That is not why Jesus came. Jesus says it as clearly as he possibly can in John 3.17 when he says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That verse, John 3.17, is every bit as important as John 3.16. They both speak of the superpower of mercy. The whole story of Jesus is a story of God's mercy. And mercy reaches the heart. Mercy reaches the heart because mercy saves. It spares us condemnation. If you'd like to, you can turn to Matthew 10. We'll be looking at verse 28 in just a moment. Mercy spares us condemnation. Hmm, condemned. How often have you heard that word? I mean, we use the word condemned generally to speak about structures that are no longer safe. Visiting Detroit a number of years ago, I took numerous pictures of buildings that were once architecturally beautiful, but to, due to neglect abandonment they became condemned unsafe like a bridge that is no longer safe to go across but more relevant to our discussion condemned generally means destined for destruction and biblically if a person is condemned he or she is destined for destruction Jesus speaks of this kind of destructions in destruction in places like Matthew 10, 28, where he says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Biblically, the only thing that can turn the condemned from destruction is mercy. Because mercy saves. And when you come to the place in your life where you realize you're in deep trouble because of the things you have done. There's nothing like having someone give you mercy. It changes your heart. It creates a heart of appreciation. It creates a heart of gratitude. It creates a heart of loyalty. It creates a heart of love. The saving power of mercy is what we celebrate at the Lord's Supper. Mercy reaches our heart because we know that mercy comes at a great cost. If you'd like to, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 in your Bibles. We'll be reading from there in just a moment. Imagine you loan someone some money, and they fall upon hard times, and they can't pay it back. What would you do? Well, you might choose to show them mercy and tell them, hey, don't worry about it, you can just keep the money. But doing that is difficult. And one of the reasons doing that is difficult is because when you show them that kind of mercy, you can just keep the money. You're absorbing the loss, and it costs you personally costs you the money that they didn't pay back to you. And real mercy, all real mercy, comes with a cost. I mean, even a teacher who shows you mercy by granting you an extension on a project that was due on Friday and says, yeah, that's okay, bring it in on Monday, when they show you that mercy, it has a cost to them, whether it's small or large. It has a cost of time, of them having to rescheduled a separate time to grade your project separate from the others that came in on time. And, and it might cost him even just a, a sense that he needs to set aside a principle that he deeply believes in that work should be done on time. Mercy always has a price. And in the case of Jesus, it had a great price. In First Peter chapter 1, in verse 18, we read this. It says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Sacrifice, cost, payment, mercy. The cost of mercy is what you see when you look at the cross of Christ. It is what we celebrate at Communion. And it touches even the hardest of hearts. Mercy is a keystone of Christian faith because it reaches hearts and it expands the soul. And an expanded soul is a beautiful thing. And we use this figure of speech uh, to talk about people. You might do something and someone would say, that was very big of you. And that means you did something that was unselfish and and giving. On the other hand, I have a friend who often say, He's a real small person. And he's not talking about physical size. He's talking about pettiness. He's talking about smallness of heart. He's talking about poverty of compassion. Often, when we experience mercy, something happens in our very selves that makes us bigger. I often say, I'm sorry, I say the word often because it's not a guarantee. Some people, finding mercy... They seem to be unmoved. But those who are moved are moved in a way that transforms their person. It changes their identity. They are transitioned from being a small-hearted, petty person into being compassionate and great in mercy. Mercy does this because it fills the soul with appreciation. In their book, Healing a Wounded Idealist, a Guide Back to Faith for the Christian Cynic, Justin and Irene Renton talk frankly about self-pity. Irene speaks of her struggle with dysthymia or mild depression. And after noting the role of medication in treating more severe forms of depression, she writes these words, and this is a rather lengthy quote, several sentences, but it's worth reading, it's worth hearing. She says this. In his book, How to Win Over Depression, Tim LaHaye asserts nothing produces depression faster than self-pity. In fact, he claims this is one of the primary causes of depression. This idea surprised me, as I had heard depression mostly defined as anger turned inward. Initially, I took offense at what LaHaye was suggesting. I didn't have self-pity. I got hurt, wounded even sad at times, genuinely sad, but I never feel sorry for myself. I was tempted to put the book down, discarding it atop a pile of Christian pop psychology, but instead decided to meditate on it. It didn't take long for me to recognize the self-pity in my thinking. It had just been well camouflaged in genuine difficulties and justifications so that I hadn't seen it for what it was. I realized I had felt sorry for myself. A lot. I was an idealist. I had been wounded. And feeling sorry for myself was the obvious next step. Please know that neither Irene nor I am denying the medical realities of severe depression. We're not talking about that at all. So setting that aside... Think for a moment about what she's saying here. I hear her saying that if self-pity can cause your heart to shrink as it slips into depression, then would it not follow that celebrating mercy would cause your heart to swell as it moves toward joy? That's worth saying again. If self-pity can let your heart sink as it slips into depression then would it not follow that celebrating mercy would cause your heart to swell as it moves toward joy? You see, when Christ died, he didn't just secure us a home in heaven. He changed everything for us. And grasping that, his unrestrained mercy expands your soul. And it fills your soul with a sense of appreciation. In one way, you could say that communion, this meal... <laughs> this remembrance and acknowledgement of God's mercy actually kind of works as an antidepressant. Mercy, it's so powerful. It fills your soul with appreciation and it expands to you the meaning of love. You've probably heard the story that they asked some children, maybe ages four to eight, to define love. There's a whole list of them you can see. Dallas, for example, at age seven says that love is when your mom makes a cup of coffee for dad and takes a little sip of it just to make sure it tastes okay. (laughs) And Dennis, he's age five. He says that love is when a girl puts on perfume and a boy puts on aftershave and they go out together and smell each other. (laughs) All right. Good job, Dennis. Marissa, age five, says love is when your older sister gives you her old clothes. And then she has to go out and buy new ones. (laughs) Those are some pretty good, or at least cute, definitions of love. But as these children grow, you know they will develop a more accurate view of love. And as they begin to understand something called mercy, their definition and understanding of love will expand immensely. When you see mercy, your perspective of love is changed it is blown into a large thing. You experience love at a higher level. And I've often wondered, how did that play into the Apostle Paul's thinking as the Holy Spirit breathed the words that he wrote down in what we call the love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13? Because as he nears the end of that discussion, in verse 11 he says, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man... I put the ways of childhood behind me. Mercy. It is that which we celebrate at communion, and it expands the soul. Mercy is a keystone of Christian faith because mercy overflows, just like a river that might overflow its banks and change the entire landscape around it. Mercy can change the landscape of a life always (laughs) in a good way. The Bible teaches that mercy overflows when God's people are together. It overflows among God's people. It multiplies. Jude, one of the shorter books in the Bible, says this early on. In verse 2 of Jude 1, it says, Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Abundance. Overflowing. And by the way, that pronoun it has, you is in the Greek, second person plural. And I don't think he's just saying mercy may overflow to each of you. He might be, but I have this sense that he's saying as you are together, interacting together in life, mercy overflows among you. If you've been part of a group of people where condemnation overflowed, you know how ugly, how painful and even ungodly, that is. It is absolutely unbiblical. Mercy, peace, and love are ours in abundance. And that is what we celebrate at communion. The Bible teaches that mercy overflows among God's people, and it mercy overflows to the merciful. Jesus says that in the Beatitudes. I'm not going to put it on the screen. We just went through the Beatitudes a few months ago. But he says in 5.7 of Matthew Blessed are the merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. It's like a two-way circuit. We are merciful because we've been shown mercy, and as we show mercy, we receive mercy. Mercy overflows to the merciful. The 23rd Psalm, one of the most beloved of all passages of Scripture, ends with the words, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me, All the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Newer translations say surely goodness and love. And that's fine because the word that is there means kindness, loving kindness, mercy, goodness, faithfulness, and love. All of which could be called keystones of Christian faith. We experience mercy as we trust in God's mercy. It follows us. It overflows to us and from us all the days of our life. It is that which we celebrate at communion. And the Bible teaches that mercy overflows as we deploy it. Now that's a weird word to use of mercy. I'm going to deploy some mercy. The primary meaning of the word deploy is something like dispatching troops or equipment into position for military Action, But there is a secondary meaning, and that is this, to bring into effective action and to utilize. I want to say that when you are merciful, the action that you are bringing about is always effective on one level or another. As believers, we are instructed to deploy mercy, to utilize mercy. In fact, Jesus says it very clearly after speaking about loving your enemies in Luke chapter 6. He gets down to verse 36 where he says, just a very simple sentence, he says, Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Deploy mercy. When we do that, when we deploy mercy, mercy overflows. Let me ask you something. Who do you have in your life who needs mercy to overflow? Who do you know that needs to be forgiven? Who in your life is looking to you to forgive them? Can you deploy mercy to them? Who do you know in your life who needs to learn of the mercy of God in Christ Jesus? Who in your life needs to know that God loves them, that he cares about them, that he loves them just as they are, and he wants to help them? Communion, this meal that we take together, reminds us of the mercy we have been shown. And it reminds me of my responsibility to show mercy. It reminds me Of my superpower. (laughs) You know, a keystone in architecture is a device that holds everything else together. It holds bridges in place. It makes entrances and exits. It makes them safe. Did you know that Pennsylvania is called the Keystone State for that very reason? It was kind of thought of as the middle colony geographically, of the original 13 colonies. And because Pennsylvania held what they regarded to be a key a key position in the economic and social and political development of the United States, they said Pennsylvania is the keystone, the keystone state. Mercy is a keystone in your Christian faith. It is a keystone in regards to what you have received and a keystone in regards to what you are able to show. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we celebrate this keystone, the keystone of mercy. I hope you have your communion elements before you. I hope you have the bread, which represents the body of Christ. I hope you have the cup, which represents the blood of Christ, both of which represent the the mercy of God, this keystone of Christian faith that overflows for us. I'm going to pray a prayer of thanks for the body of Christ, and then we'll take it together. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for your merciful gift of laying down your life for a friend. We confess our sins freely to you, but not carelessly to you. And we trust implicitly in your mercy to provide for our atonement and our redemption. We know that you do this by your body and by your blood. It's in your name we pray. Amen. That which you hold before you represents the body of Christ. Let us take it together. The scripture tells us that afterward that he took the cup. This cup represents the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is poured out for the forgiveness of our sin. It reminds us of the mercy of God on our behalf. Let's thank him together. God, we thank you for your mercy that you demonstrated your love toward us in this while we were yet sinners Christ died for us. We thank you that you so loved the world you gave your only Son that whoever trusts in him would not perish but have everlasting life. We thank you that the Son of God did not come into the world to condemn the world but that the world might be saved through him. As we take this blood, we take it as a reminder of your mercy that overflows unto us. May it overflow to others through us. In your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. The blood of Christ. Amen.